Hi, it's Jen. NPR is conducting its annual survey to better understand how listeners like you spend time with podcasts. So please help us out by completing a short anonymous survey at npr.org slash podcast survey. That's npr.org slash podcast survey. We really appreciate your help supporting NPR podcasts. Thanks. This is the 1A Podcast. I'm Jen White, and you're listening to the News Roundup. In our country, we don't swear an oath to an individual or a political party. We take our oath to defend the United States Constitution. And that oath must mean something. Tonight, I say this to my Republican colleagues who are defending the indefensible. There will come a day when Donald Trump is gone, but your dishonor will remain. That was Republican Representative Liz Cheney of Wyoming in her opening remarks during the first January 6th congressional hearing. The primetime hearing kicked off a half dozen public hearings set to take place in June. But what is their purpose? And based on last night, what can we expect from the rest of them? We'll get more details and we'll take a look at the sweeping gun reform package passed in the House following emotional testimony from students and family in Uvalde. But first, let's bring in our guests. Joining us is Anita Kumar, the Senior Editor of Standards and Ethics at Politico. Anita, welcome back. Great to be back with you. Also joining us is Reed Wilson. He's a national political correspondent for The Hill. Reed, welcome back. Hey, Jen. Thanks for having me. And joining us in studio today, Ron Elving, the Senior Editor and Correspondent for NPR's Washington Desk. Ron, it's always a pleasure. Good to be with you, Jen. So I want to hear from each of you what your key takeaways were from the first day of these public hearings. Anita, I'll come to you first. Yeah, I think that sort of the key takeaway was we had seen or heard about a lot of these things and, you know, drips and drabs over months and months, but sort of putting it all together, hearing it sort of as a, almost as a court would, you know, putting out this evidence just was really striking. I Uh, you know, putting all of this together and showing all of this. You know, it had a lot of people sort of reliving that day. You saw a lot of members of Congress and reporters and others that were staffers that were in and around that building really revisiting that day and how, you know, how horrible it was for America and for them themselves. So I think we didn't really know what to expect, but I found putting all of this together and hearing from President Trump's staff, his family members, his, you know, campaign aides, uh, putting all this together really, really did paint a picture of what was going on. Reed, what about for you? I think it gets lost sometimes that the committee has interviewed so many people and gotten so much of that material that Anita talked about. I mean, they've, they've interviewed a thousand people and they put that together in a package last night that I think demonstrated not just that that this was a, a massive coup attempt to a degree to which I, I still think we're we're grappling with understanding, but also that the rest of the hearings to come are going to be appointment viewing. There, there, we're, there's so much more there. I mean, when uh, when Liz Cheney said that Congressman Scott Perry, among other Republican members of Congress, had asked for a pardon from the White House. Um, I actually gasped, and I, I mean, you, you don't ask for a pardon if you're confident that you did nothing wrong. Um, I think there is a, uh, there, there's a lot more to come here, and, and what they showed last night was the tip of an iceberg that I think is going to continue to surprise all. 
all of us. Ron, I'd love to hear from you as well. There was a solemnity about these proceedings, starting with Chairman Benny Thompson, uh, giving a kind of invocation at the beginning, really, is how I would represent it. And then Lynn Cheney, who took over for about the next half hour, presenting evidence very much like a prosecuting attorney in a courtroom, but with a, an air about her that was sorrowful, I thought. Mm. And she seemed to be speaking to her Republican colleagues. She seemed to be speaking to millions of people in America who have been very reluctant to go along with the characterization of this being criminal, very reluctant to see this in terms of an insurrection or in terms of an attempt to overthrow the democracy. She was sorrowful in urging those people to reconsider and to look at the facts. And then, of course, they proceeded to lay out the facts in a systematic way and promise us that in an additional five sessions, who knows where we might go beyond that, but at least for five sessions, they're going to continue to lay out that kind of evidence. Well, Capitol Police Officer Caroline Edwards was called to testify last night. She was the first officer to be injured during the Capitol insurrection. When I fell behind that line and... I saw, I can just remember my breath catching in my throat because what I saw was just a a war scene. It, It was something like I had seen out of the movies. Ron, what new information did we gather from Edwards about how events unfolded that day? The organization of it, I think, is the main thing that we were getting from her, the sense that the teams of people, stacks, as they were called, who were pre-rehearsed to burst through the barricades to take on the police, uh, that there was nothing really spontaneous about this. There was certainly for some of the people in the crowd. They went to a rally. They heard the president. They walked up to the Capitol. It's not just a couple of blocks. It's a bit of a hike. And they walked up the National Mall to the Capitol, and they were thinking, we'll see what happens. And at, at a minimum, and for some of them, uh, they standed, they stood, con- you know, peacefully outside the building. Uh, maybe they were chanting, maybe they were waving signs, but they had no thought of going into the building. But there were others who were more than not only willing, but ready, prepared, wearing body armor, bringing weapons of one kind and another, and then uh, using some of the t- signs and flags and things of that nature to beat police officers. They were quite prepared to be violent, and they were clearly going to go past the authorities such as Officer Edwards, people who were, who were talking to them and saying, you shouldn't be here. And, I, and I've interviewed some of, these, some of these officers. They talked to the first protesters who showed up, and they were reasoning with them, and they were saying, you don't understand. This is our job. We have to keep this as a safe building. It was a closed building because mm-hmm. of COVID. And so they were doing their jobs and trying to plead with these people to understand, and then these other folks showed up, and everything went awry. Will in Maryland writes, what I still don't understand is exactly how the rioters intended to prevent the election certification. Did they intend to actually capture some congressmen? Did they think that just disrupting the proceedings would change the mind of Vice President Pence? Or did they think the attack would incite an overwhelming national protest or an armed insurrection? And Anita, I mean, what was your takeaway from last night? I'm not sure we have an answer to that yet, but how much do we know? Yeah, I'm not sure we have an answer to that. And it might have been a combination of all of those things, right? I mean, it wasn't one person. It was a lot of people um, going there, and, and maybe they all had different opinions on on that. You know, there was obviously from President Trump and, and others 
a real push to get the vice president, Mike Pence, to change his mind, to say he, you know, he couldn't, uh, you know, go through with these proceedings that was to certify the election and to say that there was election fraud. So I know, obviously, we have heard details that this pressure campaign on Mike Pence was real. Um, There were, you know, all sorts of talk about that. I think one of the most striking things from the from the hearing. It had been reported before from Politico and other places, but just to hear that President Trump said, you know, quote, you know, the supporters, his supporters may have a good idea, you know, and of course he's referring to how they were chanting and talking about hanging Mike Pence was just, you know, unbelievable. You could hear in a couple different places sort of an audible gasp Um, In the hearing, my understanding is, if you were there, that that was one of those most striking moments was the the fixation on what the vice president could do and not do. I want to turn to this email we got from Sue in Michigan, who says, I'm so tired of the media's emphasis on the partisan aspects of this investigation. I know that it is a part of the truth, but the most important part of it all is that Donald Trump and his enablers carried out extraordinary measures to keep the power to disregard our votes. That is the bottom line. He did these things with no regard for the American people. All of us came so close to losing our democracy that day. It is miles beyond heinous, still is. But I do want to make note of of who watched these proceedings last night. Fox News carried its normal primetime programming, and hosts like Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity spent most of their time running, well, basically attacking the hearing's legitimacy. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson. You know, it tells you a lot about the priorities of our ruling class that the rest of us are getting yet another lecture about January 6th tonight from our moral inferiors, no less. An outbreak of mob violence, a forgettably minor outbreak by recent standards that took place more than a year and a half ago, but they've never stopped talking about it. Now, Reed, to Sue's point, this was an attack on democracy writ large, but is it possible to separate the partisan aspects of this? I think one of the elements that the committee used to try to uh, to try not to separate, to try to, to um, rather focus the fact that this was an attack on, on all of our democracy and not just Democrats' democracy or Republicans' democracy, is the fact that Liz Cheney, the former number three Republican leader in the House of Representatives, was the one who delivered the most damning evidence. Um, as, as Ron mentioned, you know, Benny Thompson laid out a short opening statement and Liz Cheney laid out, was, Liz Cheney was the cleanup hitter, if you will, um, in, in that she uh, delivered the most shocking revelations, uh, the, the most um, sort of explosive allegations. And you know, she's, no, she's no shrinking violet. She's no liberal uh, or, or anything like that. Um, it, any, it, it was it was shock, It was it was remarkable to me a few weeks ago when uh, when Dick Cheney showed up on the floor of the House of Representatives and Democrats were uh, were going over to say hello to to both him and his daughter. Um, I mean, politics makes for strange bedfellows sometimes, but in the defense of democracy, uh, there are there are members of both parties uh, who are very willing to be front and center in making that case. Well, Rob tweets, the fact that the committee needs to convince the public that Trump tried to overturn the 2020 election shows us how strong right-wing disinformation is. Most of Trump's actions were done out in the open, oftentimes on TV and on social media. We're rounding up some of the week's biggest news. And remember to join future conversations, download our 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a voicemail. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. Life can be overwhelming, and many are burned out without even knowing it. 
Struggling with work or any of life's roles can lead to a lack of motivation and detachment. Prioritize your mental health by talking with someone. BetterHelp Online Therapy offers video, phone, and live chat sessions with a professional therapist, and it's more affordable than in-person therapy. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash 1A. We're rounding up some of the week's biggest headlines. Let's get back to the conversation. We spoke to Democratic Representative Adam Schiff of California just before the first hearing uh, around January 6th. And here's what he had to say about losing Fox viewership. I've always maintained that the difference between Watergate and today uh, is that Richard Nixon didn't have Fox News. Uh, If he had, he probably would have never been forced uh, from office. Um, And it's quite telling that Fox News doesn't want to cover the hearings because they don't want their viewers to see the truth. Ron, why is it important to lay out the events leading up to January 6th, what happened that day and what followed, even if many of the people tuning in aren't the ones who need to be convinced about the seriousness of the attack? Because some people who are tuning in, whether it's because they have little other choice when you do have this kind of road roadblock coverage, uh, they can go to Fox. But if they're not Tucker Carlson fans, and yes, he has an enormous audience by cable standards, but it's 1% of the people in the country. When you really look at it, 3 million people is a great audience on cable, but there are 330 million people in the U.S. So there are a lot of people out there that don't fall in the Tucker Carlson camp and who also are not necessarily tuned in to every nuance of uh, what the Democrats are trying to say. There are people who are convincible, possibly reachable, persuadables, as they call them in politics. And if even some of those folks were to be watching these hearings and perhaps for the first time focusing on what really went on and the degree to which it is clear that Donald Trump had been clearly informed again and again by people he had every reason to trust that there was no basis for him to think he had won that election and yet he goes out and calls it a sacred landslide over and over. That needs to be driven home to those people who might still be in the persuadable category. Uh, during the hearings, the GOP Judiciary Committee, as well as other individual Republican Congress people, fired off a bevy of, of tweets undermining the proceedings. Anita, what does it say that we're seeing this reaction from so many congressional Republicans? Yeah, I mean, this is turning out in some ways on the political front exactly sort of how we thought. You know, the Republicans and Democrats here are not going to be convinced. They already know what happened. They've heard what happened. This is not going to change any lawmakers' minds. So we knew that Democrats or, you know, this committee, uh, mostly of Democrats, but not fully, was going to have this hearing and they're going to have a host of other ones, three three more coming up soon. Um, And we know that the Republicans are going to just say they're opposed, say that this is uh, stuff that's already been out there, that it's something that's being rehashed. So it's a very political issue, whether it should be or not, it has become one. And we expect this to be like this, you know, all the time. I'm, I'm reminded of other times that we've seen hearings, both that were put on by, you know, when either party was in the majority. Different hearings. I remember the, covering the Benghazi hearings where, you know, the other party is there sort of doing this um, counter-programming, saying why the hearing is off and wrong. And so I would expect that to continue. This is going to be that talking point. Don't know if this is going to translate to most Americans, though. You know, are they tuned in, as, as Ron said, or are they not? Are they paying attention? Have they made up their mind? We, we just don't really know um, whether they're going to be tuning into this, this, you know, this 
these hearings very much over these next few weeks. Well, Asano notes, Fox News didn't run its regular programming opposite the January 6th hearing. It ran ad-free, uninterrupted programming. Fox News didn't simply ignore the hearing, but aggressively ran against it. We also got this message from Bob, who writes, one of the key pieces of information that came out last night was that the Proud Boys were at the Capitol well before Trump spoke. They appeared to be preparing for the assault. So when Trump sent the crowd to the Capitol, it appears that he knew what would happen. This was a big revelation. Now, Anita, we should note more than 800 people from 50 states have been charged with crimes following the insurrection. 300 have pleaded guilty, according to an NPR database. We asked Democratic Representative Adam Schiff about whether the success of the hearings is dependent upon future criminal charges. Our role is to expose uh, all of the ways in which our democracy became threatened, how close we came to losing uh, so many of our democratic institutions uh, in what became the first non-peaceful transfer of power in our history. Um, it won't be up to us whether people are charged with criminal acts in connection uh, with that plot to overturn the election. Uh, that will fall on the Justice Department. Um, but exposure is one form of accountability. That's what we are going to try to bring about and remedies, uh, that is, reforms that can help protect our democracy going forward. Uh, but the other kind of accountability is really uh, beyond our control. I need the January 6th committee has no prosecutorial power, but how could the Capitol hearings affect the legal case against former President Trump and his allies? Yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. But they have done this huge investigation. We mentioned earlier, they've looked at talked to a thousand witnesses, including some of President Trump's uh, family members we had mentioned, uh, top advisors. They've looked at 140,000 of 40,000 documents. You know, it is a big staff they, that they have, and they have former federal prosecutors and former U.S. attorneys on their staff. They are very well aware of, you know, sort of how to do an investigation and how that might, uh, you know, how, may, how they might put this evidence out there and, and see what comes. So I think that, yes, the, obviously the congressman is, is right. There are all sorts of different consequences. Some is what is public opinion. Some is partisan and, and it's politics. But some of it could be, you know, the Department of Justice seeing other information out there that could be uh, sought and, and seeing what other what other charges they could file. Uh, quickly, I would love to hear from each of you as the hearings continue, whether there are outstanding questions you really hope get answered. Reed, what about for you? I am very curious to know who those other Republican members of Congress who asked for a pardon uh, were. Uh, that's going to shed light on uh, perhaps just how involved, uh, how, how widespread this was beyond the White House, beyond the Proud Boys, and effectively what the threat is inside the House of Representatives at, at the moment. Ron, what about for you? Wondering how much planning went on involving, as Reed says, some of the other members of Congress planning that assumed that there would be rioters inside the Capitol, people who had breached the building. That's why I call them rioters. There's no other way for them to get in. They had to break their way in. They were never going to be invited in. The building was closed for COVID. So they had to break in. And yet, and yet, there were people who were talking about where we're going to go, whom we're, whom we're going to try to encounter, what offices we're going to go to. That sort of planning was going on, and it is alleged involving some of the Republican members of the House themselves, that they were helping this kind of planning go forward. That, I think, would be arresting, let us put it that way, to many of those persuadables. Anita? 
You know, I covered uh, the Trump White House for, for all four years, so my fixation is really on sort of what was happening in the White House at the time. Uh, the committee has said that one of the hearings is going to focus on what the president at the time did or didn't do to stop the violence that was happening uh, for all those hours that afternoon. We've heard bits and pieces about where he was, what he was saying, who was trying to reach him. Um, but I'm looking for more of a fuller picture of that. You know, what, who was in the White House telling him to do, you know, advising him to do something and what did he actually say? We, we got a little bit of that information last night when uh, we had heard some testimony about how uh, it was actually the vice president who was was ordering, uh, you know, so the military and others to come there, and it and then the president's staff saying, "Look, let's say it was the president." So I'm really interested to hear what President Trump was doing uh, and not doing that day. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to gun legislation. On Wednesday, the House passed a sweeping package of gun regulations, one that's almost certain to not pass in the Senate. Just five House Republicans voted for the bill. Reid, there's a lot in this package. Could you run through it for us? Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. So this was actually the, the Democrats broke it into uh, seven different parts. And those parts included things like prohibiting sales of automatic, uh, semi-automatic rifles to those under the age of 21, raising the age from 18, banning uh, high capacity magazines of, of more than 15 rounds and requiring better storage for those who own guns. Uh, most of the votes, along with the final package, were bipartisan. There were four Republicans who voted for it, uh, four Democrats who voted against it. Um, and this is, this is uh, the, the, the broader package is sort of the wish list that Democrats have, but it's not connected to what's actually likely to pass, which is probably something that's going to come out of uh, bipartisan negotiations that are happening at the moment in the Senate. Well, the bill passed after a morning of emotional testimony from gun violence victims. That includes fourth grader Mia Cerillo, who survived last month's mass shooting in Uvalde. He shot my friend that was next to me, and I thought he was going to come back to the room, so I grabbed the blood and and put it all over me. We also heard from Felix and Kimberly Rubio, whose daughter Lexi was among those killed at Robb Elementary School. I'm a reporter, a student, a mom, a runner. I've read to my children since they were in the womb. My husband is a law enforcement officer an Iraq war veteran. He loves fishing and our babies. Somewhere out there, there is a mom listening to our testimony, thinking I can't even imagine their pain, not knowing that our reality will one day be hers, unless we act now. That's Kimberly Rubio. She and her husband Felix lost their daughter Lexi at Robb Elementary School. Ron, given the push for more regulation from those directly affected by gun violence, why is this House legislation not likely to pass in the Senate? One word, filibuster. Uh, It is entirely possible that you could get 50, 51, 52 votes for some kind of a package, possibly even the House package, if you could bring over a couple, three Republicans and make up for the possible loss of Joe Manchin from West Virginia, who has generally speaking been pretty much pro, well, let us say pro Second Amendment. I think that's the way he would like to put it. And defender of gun rights. So 
even if you could pull over a couple, three Republican votes and get a majority, you could not get the Senate to proceed to actually formally consider the bill. Even though a majority of the senators wanted to vote for it, you could not even bring it to the floor because of that word, the filibuster. Uh, this is part of the way the Senate has done business. It's been formalized for about a century or so, but before that, it was just the way the Senate did business. If you did not have a strong majority of people who wanted to bring it to the floor and for most of its form Formal history that was a two-thirds majority to get cloture and bring something to the floor despite a filibuster. If you couldn't do that, you couldn't even bring it out for a debate. And that's where we are at the current moment. Uh, it's the three-fifths instead of the two-thirds majority required for cloture. That's only, huh, only 60 votes. But in a 50-50 divided Senate, which is nominally under Democratic control, but very much a jump ball every day. There just does not seem to be a way unless you negotiate a package, and we referred to this, as they're trying to do with John Cornyn, Republican senator from Texas who was willing to negotiate, trying to find some way forward to do something so that they don't just entirely throw up the – throw up their hands mm -hmm. and in, in submission say we can't do anything. Uh, Anita, at this point – how likely do you think it is that this bipartisan group of senators can come up with a bill that won't make it passed? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, we've all been there as we've watched over the years. Um, you know, they say this is the time. You know, this is this is the shooting. You know, after after Sandy Hook, they said the same thing. And then, of course, uh, that's been 10 years and, and nothing happened after that. You know, we saw this during the Trump administration when some of these shootings uh, we're killing even more people. They're huge. Um, you know, I, I just, I'm still skeptical because this has happened so many different times. You do have senators, both Republicans and Democrats, though, saying this is the time. It is different. Um, you know, I guess the one question really is about how big they're going to look here. You know, if the package that they're trying to come up with or the legislation is small and incremental, and that's what they're saying, it's much smaller than some of the things they've looked at before. If you listen to Chris Coons, who is one of the uh, a Democrat leading leading this negotiation, you know, he he's very um, you know realistic that it's got to be something that's you know, smaller than some of the things he strived for before. So if they are really looking at something that is more realistic this time around, it's possible something something will happen. But the longer they go from these shootings, you know, both the shooting in Texas and the shooting in Buffalo, New York, uh, the harder it's going to be. And it's already been a couple weeks. So I do think it gets harder and harder as it gets closer to the election, uh, as it gets closer to their summer recess, all of those things. So it's a real uphill battle. There is a, a little bit of uh, optimism, but it's just really unclear. Well, during a speech at the White House, actor and Uvalde native Matthew McConaughey argued gun regulations in the Second Amendment aren't necessarily in opposition. Responsible gun owners are fed up with the Second Amendment being abused and hijacked by some deranged individuals. These regulations are not a step back. They're a step forward for civil society and, and the Second Amendment. Reid, an NPR Marist poll found 72% of Republicans would vote for a candidate who backed background checks. 60% would vote for a candidate that backed a national red flag law. What types of gun legislation are typically backed by both parties? And is that where we could see these regulations make it through Congress? 
these these polls are really confusing because they they seem to point to a vast majority of Americans. I mean, you, you mentioned seventy two percent of Republicans in one case, sixty percent in another. You know, couple that with the ninety five percent of Democrats who also uh, would support those particular things, and you get a picture of a country that is in favor of what what supporters would call these these reasonable uh, uh, improvements to gun safety um, things that are meant to keep uh, guns out of out of dangerous hands but uh, when you package them all together the response becomes well this is a gun grab and that uh, the, the, the sort of typical response from the gun rights supporters, from the gun rights industry, which is a massive lobbying force on Capitol Hill and in the states across the country, and you get something that sounds really scary and that legislators can sort of hide behind that language in order to fail to pass even the most basic reforms. We're rounding up some of the week's biggest news. A reminder to have your questions answered on future topics or just to let us know what you think. Tweet us at 1A. We'll be back with more after the break. You're listening to the News Roundup. Let's get back to the conversation. We've been talking about efforts to pass new gun regulations in Congress, but some Americans say it's time to stop waiting on Congress and go for the presidential option. Can't you and, and, issue an executive order? Trump passed those out like Halloween candy. Yes, sir. It, well, it, isn't that something that could happen? Well, I, I, I have issued executive orders within the power of the presidency to be able to deal with these, everything having to do with guns, gun ownership, whether or not you have to have a waiting, all, all the things that are within my power. But what I don't want to do, and I'm not being facetious, I don't want to emulate Trump's abuse of the Constitution and the constitutional authority. And, and so, and I mean that sincerely, because I often get asked, look, the Republicans don't play it square. Why do you play it square? Yeah. Well, well, guess what? If we do the same thing they do, our democracy will literally be in jeopardy. That was talk show host Jimmy Kimmel speaking to President Biden on Tuesday. Anita, Biden said he is weighing an executive order on abortion rights should the Supreme Court overturn Roe v. Wade. So explain the approach here behind issuing potentially an order for abortion rights, but not one for gun regulations. Well, they just have to, his team is looking into all of these things. You know, every president goes through this where Congress, you know, just doesn't pass the things that they want to be passed. You know, they pressure Congress, but then, you know, they eventually always come back to what can they do unilaterally? What can they do by executive order? And so, you know, the White House staff and staff around the administration are always constantly sort of looking on what are some of those things that they can do. Um, You know, I will say that 10 years ago after the Sandy Hook shooting, when they, uh, you know, President Obama really tried to push through a lot of things in Congress and and didn't get that way, he he did issue a lot of executive orders on guns, um, on firearms. But the thinking has, and, and President Biden has done the same, but the thinking really is at this point, they have done what they can do. Some of these larger issues that they're talking about simply must go through Congress. Now, on abortion, he didn't really offer any details. Um, but I do know that there are a number of Democrats on Capitol Hill who do feel like the president can act with a with a variety of executive actions. It can't really, obviously, change what the Supreme Court's going to do. But it can bolster uh, you know, other things like it could make it easier to obtain abortion medication, for example. It could protect patient privacy, make sure people uh, can afford and access contraception. So there are other things that he can do, um, but some of these 
main issues on firearms and on abortion, uh, it really falls to Congress to act. Ron, your thoughts? It should be remembered that an executive order, powerful as it may be temporarily, cannot survive negative result in a federal court. So if it goes to the courts, as did some of the immigration decision-making that uh, Barack Obama made with regard to executive orders, uh, it fails. If the Supreme Court has ruled in that area and a court applies that, or even if the court has not ruled in that area yet, but a federal judge thinks it should, then that gets into the system. And in the meantime, the executive order is null. So that's one way that the executive order fails. Another way it fails is in the face of any kind of legislative action by Congress. So it is not a final word, as we saw when Donald Trump tried to use it. It can be frustrated by the other branches of the government. So if you really want to change the culture of guns in this country with the law, you need to do it by changing the law. Pam in Wisconsin writes, the failure of Congress to pass sound gun control tells me that those who are against it are not operating in good faith. They are pawns for the money they receive from donors. On Tuesday, voters went to the polls for primary elections in seven states, California, Iowa, Mississippi, Montana, New Jersey, New Mexico, and South Dakota. I'd love to hear some key takeaways for each of you. Reed, I'll come to you first. Well, I'll I'll give you a couple of ones that may be a little below the radar here. In South Dakota, voters voted against a measure that would have increased the threshold by which a ballot initiative has to pass. So instead of just a simple majority, had this measure passed, it would have required voters to approve things with 60% of the vote in order for them to go through. Um, This has big implications because later this year, South Dakota voters are going to vote on Medicaid expansion and marijuana legalization. And both of those measures are likely to pass with strong majorities, but probably not with 60%. This is part of a broader battle that we're seeing across the country in which Republican legislators mainly are doing what they can to limit the power of direct democracy, of ballot initiatives that in a lot of Western states were the way uh, that the sort of at the dawn of the progressive era, the way that those states wrested political control away from the timber barons, away from the rail barons, uh, and and they still today play a major role in in direct in in sort of the democratic governance of a lot of states, particularly in the West. The second thing I'll point out: uh, we talk a lot about whether or not President Trump, former President Trump, still maintains control uh, of the Republican Party, and there was one result that really jumped out at me in Mississippi, where a congressman named Michael Guest, a relatively junior congressman, uh, was forced into a runoff against a first-time candidate named Michael Cassidy. Cassidy actually got more votes than the incumbent. Michael Guest's apostasy was to have voted in favor of creating a commission to investigate the January 6th insurrection. Not this commission, not the commission that, that had its first hearing last night, but a commission. And that was enough uh, to get him in some serious trouble with Republican primary voters. So those are the, the two real fascinating things. Um, of course, San Francisco District Attorney Chase uh, uh, Budin uh, was recalled. A lot of people are reading that, in, in, reading a lot into that in terms of sort of the conversation around criminal justice reform and uh, the import of crime uh, in America today. I, I don't see that as, as sort of a, a broader national conversation. I think this was just a, a, a district attorney whose, whose application of the law wasn't to San Francisco likings, and frankly, the city itself is undergoing a really tough, basically, decade. Uh, and, you know, even liberals don't like their cars being broken into. Ron, what about for you? 
I was struck, too, by what happened in Mississippi. Uh, I think it's important to point out that Michael Guest, who was forced into that runoff, had voted against certifying the result of the 2020 election. It's hard to get much further than that into the Donald Trump camp, and yet it wasn't quite enough for him to secure his renomination. He may still prevail. There were a number of other people who were challenging around the country incumbents who were not seen as being sufficiently pro-Trump. Uh, one of them was a person by the name of uh, Mike Crispy in New Jersey, and he lost to longtime incumbent Chris Smith. No great surprise, but it did give rise to one of the better headlines of the day, which was Crispy Creamed. <laughs> oh, dear. Okay. And uh, there were a number of other cases around the country, uh, South Dakota, uh, Iowa, where there were challenges from the right to people who we all have thought of as pretty conservative, John Thune, the conservative senator, Republican senator from South Dakota, and others uh, in those states. And those all fell short as well. So it was not a good week uh, for Donald Trump, even on Tuesday, before we got to Thursday night. Anita, anything specific standing out to you from these primaries? Sure. I'm going to, I'll mention something that one of my colleagues wrote about that Democrats in California, which of course is a big democratic state, are starting to worry if they have a turnout problem. I mean, obviously you don't always get a, a huge turnout on primary day. Sometimes uh, people don't come out for that, but they had, uh, they did not have a good turnout uh, this week. They also didn't have a good turnout for last year's uh, gubernatorial recall. And so they're starting to worry, hey, uh, you know, what is turnout going to look like at these in these future elections. And I know that some of the, uh, you know, political operatives there, uh, the Democratic political op operatives are starting to say, look, it might be a red flag and that we need to get uh, Democrats energized and enthusiastic for the coming elections. It's, it's interesting because we've seen ever since, uh, we've seen some enthusiasm out there ever since uh, the Supreme Court, you know, we had indications that the Supreme Court would make, possibly overturn Roe v. Wade. We don't know what was going to happen with that exactly yet, but uh, you would think that some folks might come out for that, and, and that hasn't been the case so far. So going to see what, what that looks like. Well, let's turn now to the Supreme Court. Republicans are pushing for a bill that would expand security protections to the families of Supreme Court justices. And this comes after an armed man was arrested and charged with attempted murder on Wednesday near the home of Justice Brett Kavanaugh. This is exactly, exactly the kind of event that many feared that the terrible breach of the court's rules and norms could fuel. This is exactly the kind of event that many worried the unhinged, reckless, apocalyptic rhetoric from prominent figures toward the court going back many months, and especially in recent weeks, could make more likely. This is exactly, exactly why the Senate passed legislation very shortly after the leak to enhance the police protection for justices and their families. That was Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell calling on House Democrats to pass a protection bill for SCOTUS families. Ron, the Senate passed the protection plan unanimously last month, but it's since stalled in the House. What are the details? There is great agreement that we need to have total security for judges within the bounds of living a normal life. And many of the judges, of course, justices on the Supreme Court and judges all the way up and down the entire judicial system I do have families and uh, do live in neighborhoods. And here in the Washington, D.C. area, obviously, you're going to find all nine of those justices with some sort of a domicile. And they do have protection, both uh, from the court's own security 
folks and also from the local police. And in the case of this particular individual who parked his car not too far from Kavanaugh's house after having apparently cased the place, and there have been protesters out in the street in front of Kavanaugh's house on occasion since, uh, since the leak that uh, we just heard Mitch McConnell talking about. He parked his car. He called the suicide hotline and started talking to them. They passed him along to the police. The police came and knocked on the window of his car. So uh, there is a police shall we say, hovering presence. And, and, and by the way, Katanji Brown-Jackson lives not too terribly far away from that in the District of Columbia. And uh, these are, all of these justices are in some sense or another vulnerable to those people who, as, as the senator said, are deranged. So it, there's only so much that you can do to eliminate any kind of threat at all, but a great deal has already been done. Ron, why has this this package stalled in in the House? Because it's become something of a political football, because it's become, uh, as so many other things do, a surrogate for an argument that people want to have, even though there's not a great deal of disagreement or any that I'm aware of as to whether or not we need to protect Supreme Court justices. The manner in which it came over from the Senate was seen as a challenge to the House to show that they were just as concerned about the Roe versus Wade leak as were the Republican Senate in the Senate. And that obviously is going to run into a problem. It's a very, very small Democratic majority in the House. Uh, It's about enough people to get on an elevator. And if you have people saying, wait a minute, why are we signing on to this virtue signaling from the Republicans in the Senate? Uh, we, we, We don't see that that's the way to react to this particular leak or to this particular incident in terms of Judge Justice Kavanaugh. So uh, you're going to get a certain amount of that kind of pushback, and they'll work something out at some point or another so that everyone can do their own virtue signaling. Well, I want to turn to another legal story. Olympic gymnasts Simone Biles, Michaela Maroney, and 88 other women are suing the FBI for $1 billion. The suit says the FBI mishandled the investigation into sexual misconduct by U.S. National Gymnastics doctor Larry Nassar. Nassar has been sentenced to up to 175 years in prison. Anita, this lawsuit also comes after the FBI's decision not to prosecute former agents accused of mishandling the case. How has the Justice Department been dealing with this case and its fallout? Yeah, it's been uh, it's been ongoing. Um, you know, the, we've been hearing from some of these women for some time. They came before Congress and told their stories. Um, so we've seen and, and started to hear a lot about this and a lot of attention has been paid on what the FBI was doing. And the FBI, you know, through an inspector general's report, we have learned that they mishandled this. They admit, the Department of Justice admits that it was mishandled, and the FBI does. And so uh, there were people sort of saying, look, there some of these FBI agents or former agents now are going to be charged. They were not charged. And uh, one of the key issues on that was whether uh, the federal statute of limitations for prosecuting them, uh, you know, what that federal statute was. It, was it too late, really, to charge them? So they weren't charged. These women have now uh, f- sued, as you indicated, uh, to the FBI. One of the things that they're saying is that if the FBI had acted in 2015 when they first got uh, word uh, about uh, this doctor that 70 or 80, I believe it's 70 women and girls between that time uh, were abused. So, uh, you know, if they had acted right away, 70 women and girls were, would not have been abused is what, what they're saying. Well, briefly, Anita, what could come of this lawsuit? Well, they're suing for a billion dollars, uh, you know, uh, so 
it, it could be monetary. Uh, you know, I think that if you've listened to any of these gymnasts who have uh, talked in front of Congress or given interviews, you hear them not talking about money, but talking about how they want someone to be accountable. They want the FBI to be accountable in some way. And so, uh, you know, really that's what a lot of them are, are looking for is for, you know, sort of justice be done. They feel like, of course, uh, it was this, you know, this man, Dr. Nasser, but it was also the, you know, the, the FBI that, that, kept this going for so many different years. So I would expect them to really be talking about what the consequences are for the FBI, you know, draw that attention there, what they did and they didn't do. Well, we'll leave our conversation there. That's Anita Kumar, the senior editor of Standards and Ethics at Politico. Also joining us today, Reed Wilson. He's a national political correspondent for The Hill. And Ron Elving, the senior editor and correspondent for NPR's Washington Desk. Anita Reed, Ron, thanks for speaking with us. 1A's audio engineer and sound designer is Mike Kidd. He gets technical assistance from Adrian Danhauser. Aileen Humphreys is the producer and editor of 1A On Demand, and Chris Castano is our digital editor. This is the News Roundup. We'll discuss the week's biggest headlines from around the world in just a moment. You're listening to 1A. NPR is conducting its annual survey to better understand how listeners like you spend time with podcasts. You can help us out by completing a short anonymous survey at npr.org slash podcast survey. That's npr.org slash podcast survey. We really appreciate your help. This is the 1A Podcast. I'm Jen White, and you're listening to the News Roundup. The president welcomed world leaders to Los Angeles. We'll talk more about who was there and who wasn't and why. Also, U.S. relations and professional golf's relationship with Saudi Arabia. And we have news from Nigeria and South Africa. Joining us today, Jennifer Williams. She's a deputy editor at Foreign Policy and host of the Negotiators podcast. Jen, good to see you. Always a pleasure. Also with us, Nancy Youssef, a national security correspondent for The Wall Street Journal. Nancy, welcome back. Great to be back. Thank you. And Laura Seligman also joins us from Washington. She covers the Pentagon for Politico. Laura, it's great to have you back. Thanks so much for having me. But first, let's take you to Ukraine. That's where we find NPR's Greg Myrie, who joins us from the country's capital, Kiev. Greg, Ukraine's defense minister has been sharing information that caught your eye. What does it say and what does it tell us about where the war stands right now? Right. Uh, the defense minister pointed out that this has just become overwhelmingly an artillery battle and Russia just has a lot more of it. Um, we're seeing this in particular in the eastern part of the country around the city of Severodonetsk. Um, the, the Russians have been pounding this using a very sort of traditional and brutal tactic of theirs, just pulverizing uh, buildings, uh, going after uh, forces wherever they may be, and over weeks have been grinding down the Ukrainian forces. The Ukrainians have been hanging on, but they say they're just absorbing these artillery barrages around the clock, and they can't fight back. So the defense minister is saying Ukraine really needs more heavy weaponry. Um, the U.S. and others have been providing it. He says they're grateful for that, but it's not enough. He even said this would be enough to make a strong defense against any army in Europe, but it's not enough against Russia. Well, and what does this mean for civilians who are still in those areas? 
Well, a lot of civilians have fled, but there are sure there are certainly still some there. Um, we, we've had reporters in that area in recent days. A lot of casualties at the hospitals. Um, hard to get specific numbers, although the defense minister did give some numbers about Ukrainian military casualties. He said that Ukraine is losing up to or around 100 soldiers a day with as many as 500 wounded. Well, Ukrainian officials are also accusing Russia of stealing about 600,000 tons of grain. Here's Secretary of State Antony Blinken speaking on Monday. President Putin is stopping food from being shipped and aggressively using his propaganda machine to deflect or distort responsibility because it hopes it'll get the world to give in to him and end the sanctions. In other words, quite simply put, it's blackmail. Greg, what headway, if any, has been made on an agreement that would see some of this grain move to the countries that need it? Well, we haven't really seen any progress. Uh, On Wednesday, the Russian foreign minister was in Turkey. They held some talks didn't appear to make any real progress, and and more to the point, it didn't include Ukraine. So uh, Turkey could be a key player in this. Uh, They have decent relations with both countries. They control the entrance and exit to the Black Sea. But what we've got is Russian warships in the northern part of the Black Sea that are preventing these Ukrainian exports from Odessa, its main port in the southwest of the country. Ukraine is an agricultural country. Their grain, corn, cooking oil exports are enormous. Developing countries around the world depend on this. Uh, and there's a, it's a real standoff. Russia is trying to get something by saying, uh, lift the sanctions on us and we'll uh, allow safe passage. So far, though, we're not seeing any progress. Greg, what stories are you watching most closely right now? Well, one of the areas I think we're looking at is the the areas in southern Ukraine that Russia has captured and occupied since the beginning of the war. You know, for example, we heard a lot about the fighting down in Mariupol, but once the Russians took over, it sort of goes dark. It becomes this information black hole. Uh, We're not hearing much about it. Uh, We're hearing possible reports that the the humanitarian situation is is terrible in Mariupol for, for Ukrainian civilians who are still there. There are fears of of cholera outbreak. Uh, There's a lot of decomposing bodies in the city. The drinking water is not available. So we're trying to get as much as we can uh, from some of these areas in the south where Russia is now occupying these places and there are Ukrainian civilians still there. That's NPR's Greg Myrie. He joins us from Kiev. Greg, thank you for speaking with us. My pleasure, Jen. Laura, you've been following Ukraine closely this week. What stories have you been watching? So the latest news out of Ukraine that I've been seeing is that the UK Defense Minister, Ben Wallace, actually made a surprise visit to Kiev this week to meet with President Zelensky, as well as Ukraine's Defense Minister. Now, the the readouts on both sides were fairly standard, but they did hint at additional support for Ukraine's military. Of course, the UK has been a key partner of Kiev's. They've sent them more than 750 million pounds of military aid since the invasion. And um, certainly one thing we could see more of of is additional units of the advanced longer range rocket systems that the UK recently said, uh, recently sent. Um, now, this is really important because as we, dis- as Greg discussed earlier, it, this is really an artillery fight right now. And Ukraine has been saying that their only hope to turn the tide is more artillery to offset Russia's just massive firepower. 
And there's also uh, a consideration that the U.S. could send additional artillery systems and rockets as well. The the top U.S. general, General Mark Milley, who's the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, hinted at this very possibility just just the other day. Um, the the other big story that I'm watching is um, the self-proclaimed Donetsk People's Republic, that, or the DNR in Ukraine, which is uh, the pro-Moscow side. They yesterday, I believe, sentenced to death uh, three prisoners of war, two British citizens and one Moroccan for fighting on Ukraine's side yesterday. Now, this has led to just an, an outpour from critics saying this is totally illegal and outside the Geneva Conventions. Um, it might be that uh, sentence, the death sentence is a tactic to put pressure on the UK and Ukraine to make a deal to swap them for Russian prisoners. But it's certainly something that's caught a lot of attention in the last couple of days. Jen, what about for you? What are you watching? We're, we're past the 100-day mark of this most recent invasion of Ukraine by Russia. What stories are, are you watching most closely? Yeah, one of the things that I am watching really closely and have my eye on is here in Washington, what is going to be happening as the war turns into this kind of less um, flashy, less, you know, not happening in these big cities. We're not seeing, you know, Russians encircling the capital of Ukraine anymore. We're not seeing, you know, these big battles, these dramatic battles happening on social media um, in real time. I think a lot of the attention kind of globally and also in the United States, um, you know, for understandable reasons, we've had some big events happen here recently. But I'm I'm, I'm very concerned and, and watching as attention starts to wane, as, you know, compassion fatigue does start to to kind of weigh on people. I'm wanting to see if Congress, if the Biden administration, et cetera, continues to kind of keep up that support, that flow of money, that flow of weapons, that flow of support to Ukraine, because you know, the war is not over, you know, as Greg just just told us, it's still grinding on, but it is turning into the kind of war, although at a much higher um, you know, level at a much higher higher pacing, but the kind of you know, and especially in the area that it has been going on for many years in that region, and so I, I concerned, I'm concerned that there's going to be some distraction, and that the level of support and the zeal, particularly among just Americans and you know viewers and voters, um, really stopping you know to pay attention, and then the the attention could wane, and that the support could thus wane. Nancy, what about for you? Well, broadly, the longer the war goes on, the more likely and more impactful it will have, not only on Ukraine, which of course is devastating, but across the world. And so to that point, I'm really fascinated by how this affects how countries um, in the Middle East and Africa source grain, corn, and other food products, which they once depended on Ukraine. And I think what we're starting to see is an international community in some parts that has decided that not only is it moving away from Ukraine for the short term, but coming up with long-term ways to come up with um, ways to supply food to their communities that doesn't depend on Ukraine. And so that is, as you mentioned, the wars um, past 100 days. And what we're starting to see is a whole adjustment happening around this, not being a battle that will be resolved quickly, but will go on for a protracted period and will reshape um, not just the ways we think about it, um, Ukraine, potentially the borders of Ukraine, but really how the international community interacts, engages with, with Ukraine. We got this message from Martin, who writes, the Russians are increasingly launching missiles at Ukrainian-held areas from positions inside Russia. The artillery and missile systems have promised them 
The artillery and missile systems we have promised them will be of limited use as long as we forbid them from hitting targets inside Russia. The Ukrainians will be having to fight with one hand tied behind their backs. Uh, quickly, Nancy, what do you, how do you respond to what Martin writes there? So I, I appreciate the concern. I, I would just give you the Biden administration's position and say, if you, the U.S. provides weapons that are then allowed to be launched onto Russian soil, is that an escalation that justifies Russia attacking U.S. interests, U.S. allies? Does it escalate the war? And so I think the bigger challenge in, in this conflict, at least in the immediate, is, is not so much that threat, but getting the necessary weapons um, to the Ukrainians in time for the fight that they're facing, which is changing rapidly um, right before our eyes. The U.S. is hosting the Summit of the Americas this week. For the first time in almost 30 years, President Biden opened the meeting with this. As we meet again today in a moment when democracy is under assault around the world, let us unite again and renew our conviction that democracy is not only the defining feature of American histories, but the essential ingredient to America's futures. Nancy, who's at the summit in L.A. this week? Well, there are 23 um, nations represented, but that, of course, doesn't include all of the Americas. And um, what's notable was who wasn't there and why they weren't there. I should preface this by saying that the Summit of the Americas, the U.S. has always said that this is something that is intended to include, um, celebrate democratically governed countries. However, um, the and in that spirit, the U.S. said that um, it didn't, would not invite leaders from Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua. This led to um, the president of Mexico and um, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, and others saying that they would not attend, that the exclusion of one um, was, un- of, was unacceptable, and that it didn't go towards the solution um, sort of uh, drive that this, that's supposed to be behind the summit. Remember that this comes at a time when, um, in the in the case of Mexico, they've seen a huge surge of Cuban migrants going through Mexico uh, uh, to try to get to the United States. And I think one of the things that we saw was a Mexico saying that 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 in order to come up with a solution towards the migration problems that is um, striking their country, that it needs to include um, a conversation with Cuba. We, we saw a few weeks ago the Biden administration had lifted some of the restrictions on Cuba. It seems that their policy is we're going to engage with Cuba through the people. And I think what you saw was a message from um, leaders in the Americas that engagement needs to also happen with the government. I'm curious to hear from you, Jen, what you think the overall goal of this summit was and whether you think they accomplished it. Well, there were several goals. I mean, the the first big goal of being this kind of big, you know, showcase of democratic countries in the Western Hemisphere coming together and showing unity didn't quite work out <laughs> for reasons that, that you know, were, were just laid out very well. Um, there were some smaller goals on cooperation and things that they were trying to get done. That they, they have actually made some progress, even if it's been a bit messy getting there. So today the delegations are signing on to this um, Los Angeles Declaration on Migration. Uh, it's a big agreement that's committing these countries to um, basically figuring out legal pathways for migration um, humane border management, coordinated emergency response, et cetera. Um, They're going to agree to do things like expand temporary worker programs and other legal channels for citizenship, things like that, refugee resettlement. Um, So that is really helpful, um, at least in terms of, you know, showing that there's this cooperation happening on the migration crisis. 
Um, there have also been some economic initiatives that have been launched. Um, I think a big one, especially coming out of, you know, we're still in it, but coming out of the, the tail end, I guess, of COVID and the pandemic, um, the, the U.S. Uh, basically is working with this pan-American health organization to launch uh, this thing they're calling the America's Health Corps. Basically, they're going to provide specialized training to 500,000 public health, health science, and medical professionals throughout the region within the next five years. So they're trying to actually, you know, bolster health security measures. They're trying to um, bolster, I think the U.S. promised $331 million to support food security. So there were some tangible outcomes of this. Um, I think the optics weren't great, but at the end of the day, there were some benefits that I think we'll see, um, you know, hopefully help some people in the region and in general starting to at least address some of the major issues that all of these countries agree need to be worked on right now. Now, President Biden sat down with Brazil's President Jair Bolsonaro Thursday night uh, Nancy, what was this meeting about? And, and we should make note that Bolsonaro is notable for making false claims about uh, Brazil's election system, very similar to former President Trump's big lie. That's right, including right before meeting with President Biden. So as we discussed earlier, there were a number of countries that uh, were no-shows. And as um, Jen spelled out, one message was unity. And so in an effort to um, have Brazil, the second largest uh, um, democracy in the region, one, uh, it represented the president. The agreement was that the president would have a one-on-one -on -one meeting with Bolsonaro, despite the fact that he um, has um, opened the um, Amazon to more mining, has has made it easier to buy guns in Brazil, has denigrated transgender rights, um, has moved closer to Russian President Vladimir Putin, and as you mentioned, has questioned Brazil's election system ahead of um, the elections he's up against in October. And so they had a meeting, a face-to-face. -face. It was collegial. I wouldn't say it was warm. But what was um, interesting is that um, the president... Um, said uh, President Bolsonaro uh, gave a nod to um, the legitimacy of the election, saying that he came into office via democracy, and he was certain that when he would leave office, quote, it will also be through democratic means, which signaled... Um, some move away from the rhetoric that we'd heard in the run-up to the meeting. And on the U.S. side, um, it, the president, um, President Biden, appeared to talk to Bolsonaro about topics that were um, touchy and might have um, created more tensions, including, um, as the U.S. put it, supporting democratic renewal and protecting um, natural resources in the Amazon. So um, there was um, movement on both sides um, of this. But the, as, as Jen noted, this was as much about um, optics as it was um, the president of the United States showing that in his message that uh, we must support democracy over um, autocrats and those who abuse power, that there was a way to have some measured level of engagement. Now, as we noted, Venezuela was not in attendance, but President Biden did have a call with Venezuelan opposition leader Juan Guaido on his way to L.A. Laura, what was the purpose of that call? Yeah, that was an that was an interesting call. So President Biden, um, as you said, called Juan Guaido, who is the Venezuelan opposition leader, while he was en route to the summit from Air Force One. Um, of course, this caused some controversy because President Maduro is is still in power and was excluded from the event. But the purpose, to answer your question, is to um, show Biden, the Biden administration's support for Guaido and for Venezuela um, anyway, even though President Maduro was not 
invited. Um, now, of course, Biden could have invited Guaido himself to the summit, but he decided not to. Uh, that would have caused even more of a controversy. Um, and he did, in fact, tease some sanctions relief. If there is a deal that's that's forged between Guaido and Maduro as part of these sort of intra-Venezuela uh, negotiations. Now, the, the background to all this is that the Trump administration, along with many other Western countries in uh, 2018, actually recognized Guaido as Venezuela's legitimate president after the country's 2018 election, which was widely considered fraudulent. And um, there was uh, there was a lot of economic fallout from the sanctions. The country kind of devolved into into chaos, but Maduro did still manage to to cling to power. So this this call to Guaido on Air Force One, while it, he was not invited to the summit, was still a strong show of support for Venezuela. Now, before the summit opened, Vice President Kamala Harris announced a, a public-private partnership generating billions in investment for Latin American countries. And again, the goal is to address the root causes of migration. I do believe most people don't want to leave home. They don't want to leave their grandmother. They don't want to leave the place where they worship and the community that they've always known. And so when they do, it is usually for one of two reasons. They are fleeing harm, or to stay means they simply cannot satisfy their basic needs or the needs of their family. Jen, how much do we know about this strategy and, and are other countries on board? Yeah, so, you know, the in terms of the general strategy, right, it is, as you said, it's trying to address these economic push factors that are driving migration from Central America and specifically from this region known as the Northern Triangle, right, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. Um, you know, this is a huge priority for the administration. Um, Vice President Harris has been put in charge of this. Um, it is a big push that she's been working on. She's made trips to the region, although not as many as some leaders in the region would like and, and others who are watching. Um, we do see that it's mostly private um, investment that it, you know, rather than government investment, though she is the one and her team who are trying to pool this investment. So um, it looks like she's gotten kind of commitments, corporate pledges of $3.2 billion. Um, we've got commitments from companies including Visa and The Gap, uh, the apparel maker. Um, so it looks like there is going to be some actual investment happening. Now, again, these are pledges. This is not necessarily uh, something that's already happening. Visa is going to be focusing on bringing, um, according to, to the you know release from the Vice President Harris's office, bringing 6.5 million people into the formal banking system in the region. GAP has pledged $150 million to increase material sourced from the region. So we are seeing some pledges. I think the, the problem and the kind of longer term um, challenge here is that you know, the government is obviously trying to convince companies to do this. If we're looking at pure market factors, the companies may not necessarily want to do this otherwise. And so, you know, how long this government kind of initiative lasts and whether it actually ends up doing the things that it says, because it's not just economic opportunity. There are many other factors involved in, in pushing migration, crime, uh, 
you know, a lot of gang activity, um, you know, cartels, et cetera, et cetera, long-term kind of problems that are pushing this. And so, um, you know, not to mention the pull factors from the United States. So, you know, I think it's a good start. It's definitely, you know, a show that they are making some sort of progress. Whether it's going to actually address the problem is an open question. We're here with Jennifer Williams from Foreign Policy, Laura Seligman from Politico, and Nancy Youssef from The Wall Street Journal. I'm Jen White. You're listening to 1A. Well, President Biden has lots of international travel booked for the summer. He'll visit the Middle East, but later than first planned. The White House hasn't yet announced details of trips to Saudi Arabia and Israel. Later this month, Biden will travel to Germany for a G7 meeting and to Spain for a NATO summit in Madrid. The Hill says the administration is now planning a meeting in July between the president and Saudi Arabia's crown prince. The trip is already concerning those who'd hope President Biden would take a much tougher line with the House of Saud, and that's especially after the role it played in the killing of journalist Jamal Khashoggi in 2018. Here's Biden attacking his predecessor's close relationship with the kingdom in 2018. Look at the example this sets around the world. Forget what it does here. Think of what's around the world. People wonder what has become of us. And here's former Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby on CNN earlier this week. He's being pressed about President Biden's upcoming trip. Look, the the president was honest at the time after Jamal Khashoggi uh, was killed, and it was his administration, his leadership, where where we put accountability measures in, we held the Saudis accountable, parts of their government. Uh, I can tell you that the president is going to be completely unafraid to have honest, candid discussions uh, with leaders around the world, those with whom we agree on almost everything and those where we have differences. That's what a real partnership is. When you can disagree about things and you can have an honest discussion about, say, human rights or civil rights and still be able to get things done on the national security landscape. That's John Kirby earlier this week on CNN. Nancy, why does the House, why does the White House think uh, this meeting between the president and the crown prince is a good idea? Um, well, let me begin by saying I was actually in Saudi Arabia last month, and this was being discussed at the time. Um, the relationship between the two countries is quite strained right now. Um, and the reality is that the Mohammed bin Salman, um, who on paper is the Minister of Defense, but practically speaking, is the expected next leader of Saudi Arabia, cannot visit the United States. He is persona non grata. And I think there was a time when people thought in this city... Washington, that um, that the Iran, the re, the restarting of the Iran nuclear deal, the U.S. moving away from um, dependence on Middle Eastern oil was such that uh, that Saudi Arabia would not be as important as it was just a few years ago. And I think what we've seen in the last um, few months is both of those turned out to not be true. The Iran nuclear deal it has not happened as quickly as some thought. And the war in Ukraine really exposed the fragility of um, um, oil markets and its effect, second and third order effects on the economy, not only in the United States, but across the world. And so there's a recognition that there has to be some reconciliation of this relationship because Saudi Arabia is one of, if not the most influential country um, in the Middle East. And so when I was in Riyadh, what I kept hearing is that there was an expectation um, from um, um, Mohammed bin Sultan that, that, th- that any reconciliation had to happen at a presidential level. He has met with other leaders of European countries and that it was not enough to meet with his counterpart, Secretary Austin, uh, the U.S. Secretary of Defense, that that there needed to be um, a face-to-face meeting. And, and the question for the Biden administration is, how do you do that when there's so much anger about the human rights abuses happening in Saudi Arabia, um, not only within his party, but um, even among centrists? And so 
uh, what we're seeing now is a, a, an administration trying to find a way to reconcile that relationship and still stay on the message that it doesn't support autocrats, that that in the battle of autocrats versus uh, democratic systems, the U.S. will stand strong with those who promote democratic ideals. Uh, Lara, when it comes to U.S. relations in the Middle East, how much has shifted since Joe Biden took office? Well, certainly there's a lot that, that has shifted there, um, especially regards to the role of um, the U.S. in the war in Afghanistan. Now, obviously, that's Central Asia, not the Middle East, but there are ramifications throughout the region. Um, and it's interesting to me that the the president, you know, called Saudi Arabia a pariah uh, during his campaign and promised to sort of recalibrate the relationship. Um, one of his first actions, in fact, was to that he was ending U.S. support for Saudi's war in Yemen, um, although that was mostly an empty gesture because the Trump administration had already put a stop to most of what the U.S. was doing to support the Saudis there. But it was it was kind of one of these big promises that his his campaign made. And then this this reversal that the president has kind of made this year um, with considering to traveling to Saudi Arabia um, has really shocked a lot of people, particularly lawmakers, um, House Democrats are criticizing the president for even considering that meeting, particularly those on the the House Intelligence Committee. Um, And um, leading lawmakers, including um, Adam Schiff, who's the chairman of that committee, signed a letter this week urging the president to um, recalibrate, relook the relationship um, and pushed him to use that meeting to warn Riyadh against a number of things, including, interestingly, cooperating with China on ballistic missiles. This week, New Zealand announced a novel plan to cut greenhouse gases. It's on track to become the first country to make farmers pay for emissions from their livestock. To put it politely, it would be a burp tax on cattle and sheep. Nearly half New Zealand's emissions, mainly methane, come from agriculture, but the farming industry has previously been exempted from such attempts to combat global warming. Under the plan, farmers will have to pay for their gas emissions starting in 2025. Let's turn to a story that's roiling the world of professional golf. Some of the game's top players have decided to leave the PGA Tour and play in an event that's backed by Saudi Arabia's Mohammed bin Salman, who we've been talking about. The Washington Post says the Saudi government is trying to use sports to, quote, cleanse its global reputation. Listener Carla writes, now we know where some of the money we're spending for gasoline is going. It's paying the contracts of the PGA golfers who've signed with Saudi Arabia. Now, Saudi Arabia has been very open about its push to look for ways to make money that's not just tied to oil. Pro golfer Graham McDowell says he's happy to help the country move forward. If Saudi Arabia wanted to use the game of golf as, as, a, as a way for them to get to where they want to be and they have the resources to accelerate that experience, you know, I think we're, we're proud to help them on that journey. Nancy, we've talked on this show before about how so-called sports washing, where governments use sports to spin a certain story or sell a certain narrative, um, how that works. But break down the competing forces at play here. So the sports washing, we've seen that used with China and Russia. It's sort of using sports as a way to open relations with um, um, a, a, the Western world that, is not ha- that has not been receptive to the policies of that country. And so... 
What we're seeing in this example is the use of golf by Saudi Arabia. This is um, um, being funded by the Saudi Arabian government, somewhere between two and two hundred fifty million, which is an extraordinary amount of money being put into this in terms of um, award money for those who play the game. And so um, we've seen um, at least um, seventeen golfers um, banned by the PGA who have said, if you're going to participate in this event, which is um, has already started, um, and then leave is. The name of it is for the Roman number 54, for the number of holes of golf that they're supposed to play. And the PGA said if you're going to participate this in which winners of this tournament will receive far more money than they would receive in the PGA, you're suspended indefinitely. And what they're saying essentially is that um, we can't have athletes participating in tournaments that are sponsored by governments that have such a broken human rights record as Saudi Arabia does. I think the challenge is um, one of the things that everyone in, who has pushed for better relations with Saudi Arabia said is that there has to be um, some opportunity of engagement and that is there a risk in sort of saying that all things af affiliated with Saudi Arabia are, are off limits. How do you reconcile that relationship um, if, 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 if the diplomatic channels are are, are stalled at the moment? Is there sort of a soft diplomacy? Is that worth engaging in? Or is any involvement really trying to um, um, allow Saudi Arabia to fix its image internationally without making the kind of real reforms that, are, that, that the international community has demanded from, from the kingdom? Well, Nancy mentioned uh, the 17 players the PGA Tour suspended. That includes Phil Mickelson, Dustin Johnson, and Sergio Garcia, who are taking part in this first tournament. J Jen, what's your take? You're talking about professional athletes here making money playing a game. They're not elected lawmakers. What do you make of the argument uh, against them playing in these competitions? Look, I think, you know, there's obviously a very good human rights argument to be made here. Um, I think it's also just maybe we shouldn't be quite so uh, quick to think that that's the only thing going on here. The PGA Tour is the, is the premier, you know, international golf, um, you know, tournament tour that does this all around the world. And this new kind of Saudi-backed initiative is not just this kind of one-off. It is very much trying to become an alternative to the PGA Tour and is spending lots of money to pull really top players. And we're talking, you know, like Nancy said, the kind of money that the PGA Tour is not going to be able to match. And they are taking really top, you know, uh, players here. So I think, you know, as much as the PGA Tour would like to make this be about human rights, and I don't doubt that there's definitely a part of that. I think it's also just the fact that the Saudis are coming in and stealing some of their business and starting to kind of create purposely a rival um, golf tournament. And they are trying to pull these, you know, PGA golfers with eight and nine figure payments just to join. And so I think there's definitely a, a financial and rivalry element going on here as well. I want us to turn to another sports story, take ourselves back to the middle of February. Much of the world was transfixed by the 15-year-old Russian skater, Kamila Valieva, until it all started to go wrong. It was unexpected. It was shocking. It was heartbreaking. And you couldn't help but think you were watching the results of the abuse of a child right there on that ice, Olympic ice, um, at the world's greatest stage. It was unsettling, troubling, awful. And it's one of the more troubling days and evenings I have seen in my sports career. 
That was USA Today's Christine Brennan speaking to CNN about the fallout that followed Valieva's final performance at the Winter Games. Nancy, this was a story that, that dominated those games. This week, the International Skating Union raised the minimum age for athletes in its most high-profile competitions from 15 to 17. What message do you think this sends to, to those involved in all organized sports? Well, I think it was a direct response to those very events in February because, as you recall, not only did she have a performance where she faltered and you could just see her spirit breaking during the performance of a child, but in the run-up to it, um, she had been taking medication that was supposed to help potentially with endurance. She said it was her grandfather's heart medication, and it was she was allowed to compete because she was a minor. I think the message that they're trying to send is that um, – we we need to have um, people of age who can make their own decisions or at least closer to it um, in the games. I think the challenge is it suggests that the that 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 at seventeen eighteen um, the problems of the games uh, of, of Olympic games is solved. And I think what we saw in February is that um, that there's some lack in accountability for the coaches for those around those athletes and how they're treated. And so. I, I think one could argue that this is the first step, but it is not the final step to, to really addressing how professional athletes are treated. And it's not just about how young they are, but about the coaches around them and the, and the responsibilities that they have and how they're held accountable um, for their conduct and their engagement with these very, very young um, people who are at the prime of their careers. Well, the Valieva saga reflected badly on Russia, but the country was still allowed to compete in the Olympics, but under the flag of, of the ROC, the Russian Olympic Committee. The upcoming Wimbledon tennis tournament has banned all Russian players from competing. This is a punishment for Russia's decision to invade Ukraine. What do you make of this intersection, Laura, of, of politics and sports? It, it's not a new intersection, but where are we today? Well, I do think it's it's really interesting that the point that Nancy made earlier about that this is you know not unusual for some of these major powers to try to influence um, the world, influence politics by by sort of creating this foothold in sports, which by many popular sports, which obviously many people watch. You have you know you have golf, you have the Olympics, um, but it, it's certainly a, um, a it, it's certainly a reflection of these countries like Russia, China, Saudi Arabia trying to make, um, trying to really um, elevate their status on on the world stage and become a player here. So just going back to, just going back to the, the PGA for, for a minute, it's, you know, very much not about, about human rights for the players, right? It's, it's about the money, but it's also the opportunity of these younger players now to play with and learn from the top players who are going to this the Saudi-funded league, um, so it's it's a really interesting intersection here, and I think we're certainly going to see more of of this happening in the future, and especially with Russia, uh, the the doping scandals that have really plagued the teams, particularly at the the Olympics in in recent years, and now with this invasion of Ukraine, I think we're going to see a lot of countries coming out stronger to try to try to prevent some of this behavior. But but I do think there's a lot of people out there. Um, in America, around the world, that really care deeply about about these sports, and I think that it has the potential to negatively impact um, the way that that we view sports in the future. I want to turn to another story now. In Nigeria this week, at least 50 people were ki- 
know, when gunmen opened fire on a Catholic church in the country's southwest region. Jen, what do we know about the attack and who's behind it? Right. So, as you said, this was uh, um, an attack at a Catholic church. This was the St. Francis Church in the town of Owo. Um, this is in, a, in the southwestern part of Nigeria. It's in the peaceful Ondo state. That's um, I say peaceful, meaning relative to a lot of the other parts of Nigeria that have been um, really hard hit by a lot of violence, um, including you know the Boko Haram Islamist insurgency, um, but also a lot of fighting um, between you know Islamist Fulani herdsmen and um, farmers who are largely Christian and animist. We've also seen just kind of copycats, um, kidnappings and things like that for other armed groups that are using it for, for financing. This particular attack was really just horrific. Um, I mean, all attacks are obviously, but um, you know, gunmen opened fire on worshipers inside and outside the church. This was during the Feast of Pentecost, which is, you know, an important Catholic post-Easter holiday. Um, the gunmen entered the church. A few others stayed outside to shoot anyone who fled. They seem to have also set off an explosive device. Um, 50 people, many children, a lot of people were killed, many more injured. Um, the hospitals were absolutely overwhelmed, so we don't even really have a full accounting of, of you know, who was injured and how many. We don't actually know so far, it seems, exactly who perpetrated it. It's likely that, you know, various armed groups, kidnappers, extremists are, you know, from elsewhere in the country are likely behind it. No one is, as far as I know yet, claimed responsibility for the killings. Um, they tried, the, the you know, um, military and security forces tried to pursue the attackers. Um, they actually were managed to escape. So they're trying to, you know, hopefully try to find um, what's going on and try to locate the perpetrators, but so far, nothing yet. Laura, how has Nigeria's government responded to these attacks? Well, of course, the, the government has has condemned the attacks, but it's it's honestly, there's very little that that the government can really do at this point. As as Jen said, the, the attacker escaped. And this is something that has really been a problem for, for years. Um, Nigeria is Africa's most populous country. Um, and it's it's really grappled with violent attacks across across the country, primarily from terrorists for a long time. Um, in the Northeast, the problem is the, the Islamic extremist group Boko Haram, um, and its offshoot, the Islamic State West Africa province. Um, altogether, they've killed more than 35,000 uh, people um, by a UN count. And of course, this is a broader problem across West Africa. You have Boko Haram, you have, um, have Al-Qaeda, you have ISIS offshoots. Um, and these are very, very poor countries that, that have limited defense against, against terrorists' attacks. Um, and this is, in fact, sort of the new front where terrorists have been moving for the last couple of years, even from some from from the U.S. the Middle East, excuse me. Um, but I, I do think it's worth noting that the the state that this attack took place in, um, the state of Ondo, is actually mostly peaceful. But it's it's likely that unfortunately these gunmen came from elsewhere in in Nigeria, which just goes to show how little the local governments can really do to prevent these attacks and um, bring these attackers to justice. So it's really just a just a terrible situation and, and it, it keeps happening. Well, let's wrap things up today in the UK. Prime Minister Boris Johnson 
is still prime minister, at least for now. Johnson narrowly survived a vote of no confidence from his own party on Monday. The vote was triggered after dozens of his fellow conservative lawmakers submitted letters questioning his leadership. Can the prime minister explain if 148 of his own backbenchers don't trust him? Why on earth should the country? Uh, well, I, I, thank, I thank the Right Honourable Lady very much for her question, and I can assure her that uh, in a long uh, political career so far, I have, of course, picked up political opponents all over the place. And that is because uh, this government has done some very big and very remarkable things uh, which they did not necessarily approve of. And I, what I want her to know is that absolutely nothing and no one, uh, least of all her, is going to stop us with getting on uh, for delivering uh, for the British people. Okay, Jen, briefly, what does this mean for Johnson's leadership going forward? He survived the vote, but he's still very unpopular. Yeah, he survived it. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> by the skin of his teeth, um, it's not going away. You know, the scandal, the Partygate scandal that really is what prompted this, these, you know, parties that were held at Number 10 Downing Street while the rest of the country was on strict COVID lockdowns, um, that scandal's not really going away. He does technically, because he won, um, it, it, he's, they're officially prohibited from holding another no-confidence vote for 12 months, um, although the Conservative Party could potentially change those rules if they wanted to, if they really are, are out for blood. Um, you know, we saw Theresa May, this happened before she won, um, you know, a, a no-confidence vote, um, actually a better margin than Boris did, but then ended up stepping down. So uh, he's okay for now, but for how long, nobody knows. Well, we'll leave things there. That's Jen Williams, Deputy Editor at Foreign Policy and host of the Negotiators podcast. Also with us today, Laura Seligman. She covers the Pentagon for Politico and Nancy Youssef, a national security correspondent at The Wall Street Journal. Jen, Laura, Nancy, always great to talk to you. Thanks. 1A's managing producer is Paige Osborne. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. And Barb Anguiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. This is 1A.